we are going through our series now here in 128 titled This We Believe. I hope all of you have a booklet with you so that you can track along as we, um, as we go through our lesson for tonight. I'll have some more instructions as we get uh, to uh, those specific ones, but let's begin our time as we consider uh, so great a salvation. You know, every religious system, including those that came up as a response to uh, the religious system, such as uh, atheism or agnosticism, any religious system has a philosophy of life. What do I mean by that? Well, they have a view on origin of life, that is, creation. Uh, They have a view on how we should live, uh, morality. Uh, They have a view on the goal of life. What is the purpose of life? And then finally, every uh, religious system has a view on afterlife, that is destiny. What happens to people after they die? Every one of them. Every one of them also addresses a perceived issue. So they look at what the problem is and then they will address it. That's what every religious system does. I've mentioned before, but Hinduism, the religion that, that I, the culture that I grew up in in India, uh, for them what is wrong with humanity is that we have forgotten that we are divine, that we are gods. And so salvation in Hinduism has to do with works and activities that will remind you that you are God. And so I mentioned yoga is one of those activities that they do it, it is basically there to remind them that they are divine. See that? Because they're addressing a problem that says we have forgotten that we are divine. Islam, which is also a large religion, uh, teaches that the fundamental problem of mankind is ignorance. And so that man needs to be guided in order to live a good life. Uh, once people learn what to believe and how to live, then they will be able to please Allah, the God in Islam. What we do now and how we live flows from this ignorance, and this is why we don't submit to God. You know, the word Islam actually means submission. And so the goal is that human beings should all submit to the sovereign will of God. When we live out of this ignorance and don't submit to God, we sin according to Islamic philosophy. So Allah's judgment will then weigh our good deeds and our bad deeds when we die, and when he judges us and render a judgment accordingly. And in Islam, you're never certain until the end of life, and even then you're not certain whether you will go to heaven or go to hell. Hinduism and Islam. But even Christianity has a worldview, has a philosophy of life, and it too is addressing a problem. Uh, The problem is, as we learned last week, that we are by nature and by action and by the decree of God Sinners, We have sinned against a holy God. We are enemies of God by nature. We disobey him, we disregard his laws, and we suppress the knowledge of his existence, Romans 1. But unlike the other worldviews where you have to do something uh, to be saved, uh, you have to be involved in works, in Christianity, the God of the Bible takes the initiative to save us And as we learned last week, he does it through his son, the second person of the Trinity, Lord Jesus Christ. We learned when we were here that God plans our salvation, God the Son executes those plans, and God the Holy Spirit applies those plans. In the time that we have tonight, we want to understand what salvation according to Bible is. What does it mean to be saved? Uh, What is God's role in man's salvation. Uh, What is man's role in man's salvation? Now, because it's such a vast topic, we're going to do it over the course of two weeks, Lord willing. You know, as a believer, we hear these things in our hearts. As we think of our salvation, our goal is that at the end of listening to it and sitting under the teaching of God's word, is that our hearts would soar in worship at this awesome and amazing God who is our Lord and Savior. But before we get down to the study itself, it's helpful to understand what is it that we are saved from. We talk about being saved. Are we saved from ourselves? Are we saved from others? Are we saved from Satan? Are we saved from 
God. Theologians call this the theory of atonement. Now, let me warn you, there are some words that I will mention here. Uh, perhaps you've heard those words before and you are, you're at home with those words. Uh, perhaps you're hearing those words for the first time. And so if you've had a chance to pick up the, uh, uh, the handout that was there outside, uh, if you don't, you're welcome to pick it up even right now. I have listed the definitions of the words that I'm going to be using. Um, some words are perhaps familiar, some words are, are not. Theologians call what I've just described as a theory of atonement. According to Wayne Grudem, atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. That's the simplest definition of atonement. Now, there are many false theories of what atonement is that have come up in the last 2,000 years, but the one that we think is grounded in God's word, and if you have read the, the doctrin doctrinal statement, then you will see that it's substitutionary atonement that we believe in and that we believe the Bible teaches. Uh, it relates to we breaking God's law and then the Lord Jesus Christ dying on our behalf. Uh, he was the ransom. It's the act of taking place of another. That's what substitutionary atonement is. Sometimes you'll hear the word vicarious. It means almost the same thing except that in, in, when, we, when we talk about about vicariousness, we're talking about the benefit for others. That's the only difference. You know, we are saved from what then? Well, Romans 5, verse 8 and 9 tells us that we are saved from God's wrath. Let me read that verse for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 to 9. It says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 9, it says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Who is this him? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Another reference that you might want to take down is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 36 tells us that the wrath of God abides on the one who does not obey him. So that's what we are saved from. But We've talked about substitutionary atonement. Where does it mention about Christ being our substitute? A number of places, but the one that I have in mind is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Peter writes, And he, that is Christ Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Substitutionary atonement. So what this theory is saying is that we are saved from God's wrath because of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that as a background, you may ask, how did God accomplish this? How is our salvation worked out? And the most amazing thing, I was talking to someone outside about our salvation, is that even the simplest of simple can understand it. And what is that? It is that I am a great sinner and God is a great savior. I'm a great sinner, and God is a great savior. If you understand that, you have begun to understand what God has done for you through Christ Jesus. So with that as the context, how is our salvation worked out? You know, sometimes when you take a thing and look at the different parts that it is made up of, then that thing makes much more sense. I don't know how many of you were involved in playing Legos, but sometimes when you take things apart and then put them back, the larger structure begins to make more sense as you look at each individual part. So that's what we plan to do today. So it's, it's here that it is now helpful for me to introduce another new term for some of us. For others, maybe you're already familiar with this. It's the Latin term, ordo salutis. And I have the definition for us in your notes. And I also have some other things that I'll mention as we get uh, to those things. But what I want you to know is don't be afraid of these new terms. Know that if you're hearing them for the first time, take it as, as a challenge. Uh, take it that God is growing you through this process. Uh, this is a Latin term and sim simply means the order of salvation. Uh, it's not chronological order that we're talking about, but it's a logical order. It's not time-wise, but it's reason-wise. Uh, 
and the more technical definition is in your handout. So as you look at the order or the different components of salvation, a picture then begins to emerge of the beauty and the grandeur of who God is and what he has done on your behalf and mine to accomplish our salvation. Now before we look at the components, it's right to ask, why even consider ordo salutis? Why consider the order of salvation? Uh, For two reasons. Your order of salvation tells us who is at the center of that salvation, who is driving it. For example, the Armenian order of salvation has man at the beginning, compared to the order salutis that you see in your handouts. What does that tell us? Well, a man-centered order will credit man for his salvation, while a God-centered order will glorify God. And that's what we're here for. You develop a greater appreciation for God as you put God at the center of your salvation. But we think that the Bible is also teaching the same thing. But that's one, who is at the center of your salvation. But secondly, it has significant impact on how you do evangelism. Because if someone's conversion is not a matter of our evangelistic method, but a, but a matter of God's work in that person's life, our focus will not so much be on the techniques that we use, but rather our focus will be prayer and the ministry of God's word to that individual. The burden is not on you in that sense, except that you are to be faithful and faithfully sharing the gospel. But if it's a God-centered order of salvation, we trust the Lord that he is doing the right thing. So those are two reasons why we need to consider this. A plan today, as you see, there are 11 things. If you turn over to the colored part of your handout, there are 11 things as far as salvation is concerned, different components. Now, uh, not to get too technical, but there could be other things that some other people uh, have looked at and added. But I would say this would be generally uh, considered to, to include everything that, that we want to cover in our lesson tonight. My plan is to cover the top five events in the Order Salutis, uh, and they are what happens in eternity past, which is divine election, and then four of what happens at the moment of salvation. So that would be our plan. Again, if you are hearing words for the first time, instead of perhaps basing your response on what you've heard from internet philosophers and theologians, you want to do your own thinking as I share with you. Hopefully, I will build a case from the scriptures, and you will see that my lesson is actually filled with scriptures. Uh, it's, th- there is a reason for that. It's, it's a good thing to fill your lesson with scriptures, but also to help us realize that if anyone uh, is saved, it, he, he or she is saved because of the word being proclaimed to him or her. So, uh, if you hear a word and you don't understand it, and even after I share with you what it is and you still don't understand it, know that I'm available Um, I I know of some uh, people who told me that the pastor speaks and he's out the back door. Uh, I don't know where I will get if I do that here, but know that I'm available. And so are other leaders who are here who want to help us understand this. So let's, uh, with that, let's begin our lesson for tonight. That was all introduction. Let's begin with divine election. Uh, It is a part of the doctrinal statement, but what does it mean? As you will see, I have a definition on the screen for us. It's an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. It's an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved. I don't think I see it on the screen. Do you want me to stop or keep going? Keep going, okay. That definition is also in your handout, so we are not going to get lost. It's an act of God by which, before the foundation of the world, he chose in Christ those whom he graciously saves and then sanctifies. Now, 
That is a tough thing to listen to. If you've not grown up in a, I would say a Bible-believing church, you should have heard this word because it's in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. Well, what verses can I refer to to, to defend this? Well, uh, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 7, 7 gives us a kind of a start. In it, the Lord is talking and he says, the Lord did not set his love on you, this is the Israelites, or chose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He loved you, in other words, because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. In Acts 13, 48, 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You may have grown up in a different tradition, but as soon as you put this lens, a lot of things in the Bible that didn't make sense earlier begin to be meaningful. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. There's a few other references that I have on my slides, and again, these will be posted online. But we have enough evidence throughout the scriptures to tell us that God was involved in choosing uh, for Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 11, is an extended treatment, the longest Greek sentence in the Bible that goes on to talk about what God did before eternity. So what about this particular statement? Well, first thing, we have to understand that it is eternal. Uh, this is not a decision that God took in time. Uh, this was not as if it was a plan B for, for him. No, not at all. Uh, listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, before the foundation of the world. Uh, this was a decision taken in eternity past. Secondly, it's limited or definite and not everyone is saved. I mean, we can look at our own family and neighbors and others that we know. Not everyone that we know is saved. How do we know that? Not everyone loves and, uh, God and loves God's people and loves his word. And so that's how we, we know that. But in John 6, 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out implying also the fact that there are some who will not come to him because the Father has not given them to him. You know, this announcement during Christmas, a verse which is so familiar to us, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, uh, it says, She will bear a son, that is Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, and listen carefully, for he will save his people from their sins. It's definite, it's limited in that sense. It's unconditional, it's eternal, it's limited, it's unconditional. It's not on the basis of works that he saves us. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes, who has saved us, that is God, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So as you think of divine election, if you're hearing this for the first time, don't just dismiss it. Look at the evidence in God's word. What are some things that we can say about divine election? Well, it is eternal. Well, it's limited. And then it's unconditional. If it is those things, then what should be our response to this? What is an application that we can take from this? It should make us humble, shouldn't it? It should make us humble. If God is the one who chooses according to his wisdom, there's no place for pride. There's no place for pride. Uh, you know, a proud Christian is really an oxymoron, right? There should be no place for pride. But secondly, it should provide us comfort in the trials of life. If God elects, 
then he's able to hold us fast. He will never let us go. In the midst of difficult circumstances, what a comfort it is to know that God took this decision before in eternity past and that he is trustworthy and that he holds to his promises and that he will never let us go. Now that is one act that takes place in eternity past. That brings us to the moment of salvation, the moment of salvation. So first of all, divine election, but secondly, effectual calling. Again, it might be something new for some of us, but for others, we may have heard this phrase before. But what does it mean? Well, effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. He summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Now, this is different from a general call, which is a call to salvation. There is genuineness in that offer, and it is given to all individuals, uh, a call to obtain eternal life and forgiveness of sins. So you might ask, what is the difference between a general call that is given to all and an effectual call? You know, effectual call is a specific powerful and transformative call that results in genuine repentance and faith. That's the difference. Let me read that again. Effectual calling is a specific, powerful, and transformative call that results in genuine repentance and faith. Well, where in the Bible is it found? Well, you can note this down. In John 6, 44, our Lord says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race. He's quoting Old Testament there. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a beautiful thing to hear that. He has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what happened to you. That's what happened to me when we were saved. So what about effectual call? There are a few things that we can deduce from this is, first of all, it is God the one, is the one who initiates this call. God is the one who initiates this call. 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is God who initiates this call. 1 Corinthians 1.2, a couple of verses earlier, to the church of God, Paul writes, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. It's God who initiates this call. But how does he do that? He uses, secondly, the gospel to call. He uses you and I, who are his children, to share the gospel with someone else, and then he issues the call. Well, do we have a reference for that? Yes, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, Paul writes this. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now listen to this. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever take your sharing the gospel with someone for granted. See, God is the one who initiates the call, but God uses the gospel to call his people. Now, what difference should that make in our life? What application can we draw from effectual calling? Well, first of all, be faithfully delivering the gospel. He uses, and he's always used, faithful men and women like you and me to share the gospel with others. A number of you that I know, and you can attest to this, God used you sharing the gospel with someone in your family to draw them to himself. 
So be faithfully delivering the gospel. Romans 10, verse 14 and 15, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Don't ever stop taking for granted the impact that it can have of you sharing the gospel with a friend, with a colleague, with a brother, with a sister, with a dad, with a mom, with a neighbor. Be faithfully delivering the gospel as we think of the effectual call. But secondly, as a result of the effectual call, God's intention for us is that we would pursue holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, Paul writes, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. As a result of God calling you and saving you, you and I are to pursue holiness. Effectual call. And thirdly, that brings us to regeneration. Regeneration. Well, what is regeneration? Well, as the gospel comes to us, God speaks through it to summon us to himself. That's what effective call is and to give us and then he gives us new spiritual life that's what regeneration is effective calling is God speaking powerfully to us and regeneration is God the father and God the Holy Spirit working powerfully in us to make us alive now to regenerate is to impart life it's to give life it's to make alive but you say, am I dead to make me alive? Answer, yes. That's exactly how scriptures define our condition, spiritually speaking. Romans 5.12, therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What is regeneration then? Here's how Grudem defines it. He says regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. Now, this is also sometimes called as being born again. Born again. I remember when I was still in India, uh, one of the phrases that one of our presidents loved to use on uh, presidential campaigns was the fact that he was a born again Christian. Born again. That, uh, when he started using it, apparently that's when the phrase gained prominence. But for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, that's how God always saved people. Born again. That's a biblical phrase. But where in the Bible is this phrase found? Well, why don't we turn so that we can all still be awake? To Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Notice what Paul writes to Titus as we consider regeneration. It's a word, by the way, that is used in the Bible only twice. But the way in which I'm using it, it's used only once. And that's Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Here's what Paul says. He says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness... But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration. It's, it's when God gives, imagine a dead person in a morgue. When God, and, and suddenly life comes into that dead person and that person gets up. That's what happened, spiritually speaking, to you and to me. And that's what being born again is. Uh, this phrase, being born again, is used so commonly with, uh, in, in, in the discussion that our Lord had with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's something radical that is taking place in your life and mine when we, when we trust the Lord Jesus Christ, when we were saved. And this is one of those things that takes place. It's like a dead person becomes alive. Last week I mentioned about the dead person who says, I, didn't, I don't feel any weight of the sin. I don't feel any weight of sin. Well, if you're dead, you're not going to feel any weight to begin with. Only the live person feels the weight. That's why our conscience is so sharp when we become believers. We are we're conscious of every little sin that we do that we commit against a holy God. Because previously we were dead and now we are alive. Well, how does that happen? Jesus answers Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's what regeneration is. That's what, is, that's what it means to be born again. What can we say about being born again? Well, first of all, we can say that it is a divine act. It's a divine act. There's nothing that that child does to be born again. You know, I had the joy of being in the room where all of my children were born. And I can tell you, they did nothing to be born into this world. And there's a comparison there to our spiritual birth as, as well. That's what regeneration is. In John chapter 1, verse 13, it says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How does he make it happen? Well, repeatedly in God's word, we are told that God regenerates through his word. He does it through the proclamation of his word. If you get a chance to talk to Pastor Tom, he will tell you the number of people that have come to him after his series in Romans and 1 John who have told him uh, that they thought they were believers before, but they truly became believers after listening to God's word. That's the power of God's word. 1 Peter 1.23, Peter writes, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, and listen to this, that is through the living and enduring word of God. In James 1.18, James writes, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. You know, one of the things that we do, we've, we haven't had much of a short-term mission trips recently, but when we used to have them, and Lord willing, we will have some more, for those of you especially who are looking to missions, one of the things that we tell these people who go on the mission field is they ought to memorize scriptures that come with the gospel tract. You perhaps have seen a gospel tract. If you have not, our welcome center would have some. We have some as well. And that gospel tract has a number of verses. You know, God uses his word. God has promised to use his word in the sense that you have that memorized. And then when you share the gospel, you are quoting verse after verse after verse. If you were ever a part of our evangelism class that's offered twice uh, in a year, we, one of the things we ask the participants to do is memorize those verses. Why? Because God regenerates through his word. Through the living and enduring word of God. If that's the case, what is an application that we can take as a part of this particular point of regeneration? One of the greatest things that I took from it, perhaps you might be impressed with this, is, is now we are cleansed. You know, Paul uses that phrase in Titus 3, 5, where he says, by the washing of regeneration. I mean, we wash something which is, which is dirty before. Uh, we were soiled with sin, and God washed us when he made us alive, when he regenerated us. But not only are we cleansed, we are now in a position to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only a live person responds to God's call in that sense. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. So we are in a position to believe in Christ. But not only that, we are now in a position to obey God. 
1 John 5, 3 and 4, John writes, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. You're now in a position to obey God. It's a joy to obey God. It's a joy to list things. What are some of Jesus' commands in the scripture? What are some commands in the scripture? I want to obey them. Love your enemies. Sign me up for that because that is antithetical to what the world teaches. Uh, Forgive others. Be kind. Be gentle. Be compassionate. Uh, Be long-suffering. Those are all fruit of the Spirit in a sense, isn't it? We have a list in Galatians 5, but, uh, but humility is not mentioned in there. It doesn't mean that that is not a fruit of the Spirit. That is a fruit of the Spirit as well. And so you begin to see that if you are born again, there is a desire to obey God. It's not a chore anymore. It's a, it's a joy to obey God. You've looked at Three things. One, that takes place in eternity past. And then two, that takes place at the moment of salvation. All of them divine acts. None of them can we take credit for. And not even the one that I'm going to just mention now. And it's the fourth one on that list. But before we get there, we come now to an act that is both divine and human. Uh, We will begin by looking at two of those activities that are both divine and human. And we can call this a moment of conversion. And again, don't think of it chronologically. Just think of it logically in that sense. Uh, You know, to convert is to willingly respond to the gospel call. Uh, Two actions are involved in that process. Uh, Think of it as two sides of a coin. The coin of conversion on the one side, uh, uh, the coin of conversion on the one side is faith, And the other side is repentance. Grudem writes, the word conversion itself means turning. And here it represents a spiritual turn, a turning from sin to Christ. You know, a number of times in the scriptures we have repentance mentioned on its own. We have faith mentioned on its own. And there are a few times when both those words come together. Uh, One place that they do come together is 1 Thessalonians 1.9 where Paul writes... For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. Another place that it comes together is Acts 20, verse 17 to 21. I can leave it with you to to follow up on that. But let's begin by considering one side of the coin, which is faith. Now, Why is it important to consider faith? You know, there was a council which was called the Council of Trent, uh, which was basically Catholic bishops coming together to respond to the Reformation. It took place over a number of years from 1545 to 1563. And they were responding to the influence that Luther and Calvin were beginning to have in Europe. You know, Martin Luther was still alive. He died in 1546. And Calvin died in 1564. The primary purpose of this council that was meeting was to condemn and refute the belief of Protestants. And so this is what they came away from that council. Listen carefully. It says, if anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but they say works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Now what does that mean? Basically what they're saying is works is a part of your salvation. Works is not a result of your salvation. It's a part of your salvation. And anyone who believes that works is a result of your salvation, that person we will condemn and we will put them out of uh, Catholicism or what existed at that time, anathema. And so it's important to understand and study what faith really is. What is it? What is faith? It is trust or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he has said. That's what faith is. Uh, To help us understand in your definitions, I've broken it down into three aspects of what faith is. The first one is knowledge. You know, when we say we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ 
it assumes some knowledge. You and I assume some knowledge when we say, I've placed my trust in Christ. That's what noticia is. But there's another one that is essentious, and that is that we now believe that it is right and that it is good and that it is true. That's what the second aspect is. But if you believe something is and something is true, all you've done is reached a stage where even demons have reached that stage. In fact, in, I think in James 2.19, it says you believe that God is one, you do well. Demons also believe and shudder. If you know something and you know something is true, there is another step that is needed. And that's what is trust. It, this is where will is involved. Dr. Kevin Zuber, who teaches in the master's seminary, he says this commitment, which is the third phase, includes submission to Christ as Lord and the obedience to appropriate his lordship. It's not just that you know this is or know that this is true. No, you have placed your trust in it. That's what faith is. This is a special faith or a saving faith. This is a faith in Christ and the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. It is God who saves us, and our faith is never the cause or the grounds of our salvation. Now, where in the scriptures is this found? A number of places, but perhaps the one that comes to my mind immediately, and as I've studied it, is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. What does Paul write there? He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember the Philippian jailer in Acts 16? You know, Paul and his companions are there. They are singing. And then an earthquake takes place. And this jailer thinks, if the prisoners have escaped, it's going to be my life. And so why not I just kill myself? And Paul stops him. And then he turns to Paul and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Faith. So what about this? Well, true faith is pictured as something that is looking to him. It's something that is receiving from him, and it's something that is coming to him. You know, in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now that we understand a little bit of what faith is, what should be our response to this? Well, first of all, the fact that it is a gift from God. And because it's a gift from God, he is still the one who gets the glory. Uh, you know, Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. It's a gift that God gives. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And what does such life do? What does such faith, faith do? Well, it leads to obedience. Obedience, then, is the inevitable manifestation of true faith. You say you have faith, it will be seen in you obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. But how do we understand faith? And I love Pastor Tom's illustration of that. Perhaps if you've been at our church for some time, you've heard this before. He says, imagine that you are driving in a car on a desert road and you suddenly find yourself stranded. You don't have any water and number of hours are now passing by and you are losing all the fluids even from your body. And in that stage, imagine after a few days, a car comes by and passes, uh, drives past you and they have water. And so it stops and they say, we have water. And you say, well, I don't even have a cup. Do you have an extra cup? And they look in their car and they do have an extra cup. So they give the cup to this man who doesn't have a cup and they give him water. And Pastor Tom says, that is what is happening in faith. I think it was Calvin who said, it's empty hands of faith that you extend to God to receive salvation. It's like the cup even didn't belong to you. No, it was just a means for you to receive the water. And that's what faith is. It's a means for you to receive God's salvation. Again, I'll be here. I know I'm rushing through some of these things, but if you have questions, I'd be happy 
to meet with you after we are done. You know, we don't earn our salvation. You don't deserve salvation because you exercise faith. No, it's merely the means through which you receive the gift of God's grace to you. That's faith. But fifthly, and finally, repentance. Repentance. I hope you're able to track along with me without these slides. Um, but those slides I plan to post on our website just in case you missed something. That brings me to the fifth one, which is both a divine and a human act. You know, it's, it's a tragedy that when someone presents the gospel, there's not much mention of repentance. I'm not talking about our church here, but generally speaking in the Christian worldview. But what is really repentance? Well, there are two Greek words that are translated as repentance, and the two Greek words are uh, metanoia and epistrepho. Now, I just mention it because I, I think it will help you to understand why I mention it. Metanoia has the aspect of change of mind, and epistrepho has the aspect of change of behavior. Change of mind and change of behavior. There are two times where it's mentioned at the same, in the same verse. In Acts 3.19, Peter says, Therefore, repent and return. Repent and return. And then Paul mentions the same in Acts 26.20. Repent and return. Metanoia and epistrepho. Uh, it is a change of mind and a change of behavior. It is a change of mind and a change of behavior. Here is Grudem's definition. Repentance, he says, is a heartful sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. It's, it's great to say Jesus is my Savior, but I don't want to, him to make any demands on my life. Well, that is not the gospel that the Bible teaches. Repentance is a heartful sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Where in the Bible is it found? A number of places. Let me give you a couple. Luke 5.32, our Lord says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Acts 17.30, remember Paul talking to the Greeks now. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So what about repentance then? Well, first thing I would say about it is that it's an essential part of the gospel. Faith is one aspect of the coin. Remember, the other side is repentance. It is an essential part of the gospel. If you don't talk about it, you don't mention it, all you've done is perhaps given a false assurance to someone. And secondly, it's a gift from God. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25, it says, Perhaps God may grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance. Thirdly, it's a genuine, it, it, it is genuine if followed by godly change. You know, John the Baptist, as he's talking to those who come to be baptized, he says to them, Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance is an essential part of the Gospel. So what about repentance? What, what should be our response to it? Well, it should, fill, uh, it should comfort us and fill us with hope. Well, here is God who is graciously granting repentance and he grants uh, and he responds graciously to repentant sinners uh, with forgiveness. Isn't it Isaiah 55 where it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But not only is it a one-time event, if you're a follower of Christ, it is something that should be displayed as a lifelong, lifelong pattern in your life. If you say that you don't sin, you're lying, says John. And then in verse 9 of that same chapter, 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he's talking to believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a pattern in the life of a believer. 
repentance and obedience. Now let me ask you before we move forward. You might say, well, I don't understand anything you're saying. Well, chances are that you may not have truly repented. That could be one possibility. Other could be that you're hearing these words for the first time. And again, as I mentioned before, happy to talk to you. But if you've never repented of your sins and if you've never turned to Christ, God's word says today is the day of salvation. Trust in him. Repent of your sins and believe in him. I want to draw a few applications as I close. I've gone over our time already. But as you think of God's work in our salvation, what should that do to us? Well, one of the things that it should do to us is that it should drive us to our knees in praise and worship to this great God. A number of years back, I was uh, back in India for something, and, and I was in a place called Calcutta, which is a heavily populated uh, city. Now, I've grown up in where the population is high, but this is like almost 20 million people. And as I sat there, as I, I thought to myself, you know, there's more than a billion people in this country. But God in his grace chose and elected me. Not as a matter of pride, but in humility, I thought about what God had done for me. As you think of yourself, you know, God had no reason to elect or choose you. But he did. And that should drive you to your knees as you worship and praise him. Also, it should humble us as we think of what God accomplished for you and for me. It should provide comfort in the midst of difficult and challenging circumstances of life. If he's the one who has chosen you and me, then he won't let us go. It should drive us to also obey him. And then finally, it should motivate us to, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you think of these things, let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this evening. I thank you for what you've exposed our hearts to. Lord, we know that perhaps there are things mentioned here tonight that are difficult, uh, that are perhaps new for some. I pray that they would turn to your word to seek a solution. Uh, they would turn to you, they would run to you. And your word tells us that if you lack wisdom, that you should seek wisdom from God and he is generous and he gives without reproach. And so my prayer for each one of us here is that we would run to you to seek wisdom from you. We commit the evening into your hands. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name.